Welcome to Unsealing Daniel's Mysteries. I'm so delighted that you've joined us. Many of you have been with us in the past. We've studied the book of Revelation together, chapter by chapter. Now we're going to the book of Daniel. We'll be studying it chapter by chapter. Each Wednesday evening, we'll unfold another chapter in the book of Daniel. Now, some Wednesday nights, it's going to take us a couple Wednesdays to get through some of the chapters, particularly when we get to the prophetic portions of the book of Daniel. Daniel is divided really into two parts, stories and prophecies. The stories of Daniel tell us how to prepare for end events. They talk about prayer and faith and character. The prophecies reveal an outline of those events and tell us the stupendous events that will take place just before the coming of Jesus. So the stories really tell us how, the prophecies tell us when. When we study the book of Daniel, it's important to look, I think, at three things in each chapter. First, we want to look at what does this chapter say about the character of God? How is God revealed in this chapter? Satan has portrayed God as a vindictive judge, a wrathful tyrant, authoritarian. How does each chapter of the book of Daniel reveal God's character in the light of the great controversy? Secondly, what practical lessons can we learn from this chapter for our life today? How can this chapter make you a better father, better mother? How can it encourage your heart in times of sickness or disease or unemployment? How can it help us for the times ahead? And then lastly, what does this chapter say about end events? So what does it say about God? What does it say about my life today? What does it say about end events and the events that will soon to break upon this world as an overwhelming surprise? Let's pray as we get into the chapter. But before we pray, there are a couple what I would call housekeeping items. Um, if you have any questions, you can write to us or email to us at info at hopelives365.com. Next week, we'll take up some of the questions that you might have on chapter one. And then the following week, when we do chapter two, we'll, then we'll take up questions the third week on chapter two and so forth. So that's hope, info at hopelives365.com. We're here to answer your questions. We welcome your questions. We certainly want to answer them. Secondly, starting next week, we will uh, publish some Bible study guides on the book of Daniel. So if you'd like our Bible study guides uh, next week, you can go to hopelives365.com forward slash weekly Bible study. That's hopelives365 forward slash weekly Bible study. This week number two, we'll publish the guides for number one and so forth. So each week you can have a chance to study Bible study guides along with us and review what we've gone over that previous week. Let's pray as we jump into the book of Daniel. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study Daniel. Thank you for the marvelous privilege that we have of opening the word of God, a, a, a word from the Lord that's inspired a word that lifts our spirit, a word that encourages our hearts. So be with us as we study. Give us insight into your loving character. Reveal to us how we can live life in the 21st century. And Lord, we pray that you'd impress our minds through the Holy Spirit 
about the things that are going to break and crash upon our world and help us be prepared for your soon return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are not alone in your desire to understand the book of Daniel. Did you know that Christopher Columbus, early founder of America, studied the book of Daniel? He wrote a treatise on the book of Daniel. Why was he so interested in Daniel? Because he believed that the world was soon going to come to an end. And he believed that this world was going to face a crisis. And he believed everybody had to know about it. That's what led him on his explorations. He was, when he came to America, he uh, was looking for India. Why? Because he wanted to find ways that the gospel could be preached there. So you're not alone in your desire to study the book of Daniel. Columbus was an ardent student of Daniel. One of the most brilliant people ever to live uh, was Isaac Newton, mathematician and a scholar. He studied the prophecies of Daniel and as a result of that, believed that Daniel was inspired. And uh, the Isaac Newton, this scientist, wrote a major book on the prophecies of Daniel. One of my favorite stories is a story about Timothy Dwight. Timothy Dwight was a the president of Yale College, which later became Yale University. And uh, during the French Revolution, many of the students at the college turned their backs on God. They turned their backs on faith. Yale College was originally a religious institution. But uh, during the time of the French Revolution, when people were reading people like uh, Locke and Rousseau and so forth, the students at Yale uh, became very... Um, skeptical in their viewpoints, very cynical. They would mock the Bible and downplay the word of God. Timothy Dwight challenged, <coughs> excuse me, Timothy Dwight challenged many of those students, brought them to chapel one day, came with a stack of history books. And as he did that, he had the history books in, in one hand and the Bible in the other. He opened the word of God, began to study the book of Daniel and compare it with history. And as he did, the students are absolutely amazed, eventually gave him a standing ovation and a revival broke out at Yale College. So Columbus and Isaac Newton and Timothy Dwight and Bradstreet, America's first poet, was a great student of the book of Daniel. So you're not alone in your desire to study the writings of Daniel and his prophecies. Now the skeptics of the Bible first used to say, well, the prophecies of Daniel, they're not accurate at all. But then as the archaeologists began to uncover the evidence with names and places in the book of Daniel, the skeptics changed their tune. They said, well, you know what? Daniel was not written 600 years before Christ. The skeptics said it, it must have been written 200 years before Christ after many of the events took place. And so Daniel wasn't a prophet at all. Now, there are three things that put that argument to rest. Number one, that when you look at the language of the second of century before Christ, and you look at the language of the seventh century before Christ, so you look about you know, 150 to 200 years before Christ, when many of these skeptics said that Daniel was written, and you look at the language of 700 years before Christ, 
the language of the book of Daniel is not the language of the second century before Christ. It's the language of six, 700 years before Christ. Secondly, even if you say that it was, the, take the late date for Daniel, which it wasn't written then, it was written 600 years before Christ. But even if you took that late date, there's still many prophecies yet to be fulfilled about Rome, how Rome would be divided, about uh, that can be demonstrated in history about Rome never being reunited, the nations of Europe and the nations of the Middle East in explosion. So, so that doesn't solve the skeptic's problem. But there's a third thing that I think cinches the argument that Daniel was a prophet. If you have your Bible, take it in turn to Matthew chapter 24. Now to get the most out of these Bible studies, I encourage you to have a Bible ready a pen and a notebook so you can take some notes. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Now, if you're a student of the Bible at all, you recognize that in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about last day events. He's talking about end time. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, talks about false Christs and false prophets, talks about famines and earthquakes and pestilences, talks about rising crime and violence, talks about the gospel going to the end of the world. Then in verse 15, notice what it says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, we'll study what that is when we get to Daniel 7 and 8 and Daniel 12, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So Jesus says, Daniel is a what? Daniel is a what? Daniel's a, a prophet. And so I would rather take Jesus' word than some skeptic's word, wouldn't you? And Jesus said, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, the entire Bible is inspired by God and is profitable as we read it. It encourages us and deepens our spiritual experience. But there's only one book in the Bible that Jesus said to read and understand. That's the book of Daniel. So if Jesus says Daniel is a prophet... And if Jesus says, read and understand, Daniel, it must be incredibly important to do that. What specific time was Daniel's prophecies written for? Take your Bible and go back to Daniel chapter 12. We're going to the end of the book just to begin before we go to chapter 1. Daniel chapter 12. What specific time were Daniel's prophecies written for? Daniel 12 verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall be increased. It's true that general knowledge has been increased, but that's not really the meaning of this text. You see where it says run to and fro? It's written in Hebrew language, and the Hebrew is leaf back and forth. In other words, shut up the words, Daniel, seal the book till the time of the end. And at that time, many will be studying the book of Daniel. So we're really fulfilling God's prophecy tonight as we study the book of Daniel. Look at verse 9. Go your way, Daniel, for your words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and refined. But the wicked, verse 10, shall do wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So as the wise understand the book of Daniel... It'll have a profound influence on their life. They will be transformed 
by the grace of God, as they understand the prophecies of Daniel, there will be a revival in their own life. And according to verse 10, they'll be purified and made white and they'll be refined. Their characters will be refined. So as we study the book of Daniel each week, the spirit of God will speak to your heart. You will sense the Lord working in your life. The Holy Spirit will bring you conviction of sin and the Holy Spirit will enable you to have victory over attitudes and actions in your life. You will, according to verse 10, as you study Daniel and apply these principles to your life, be purified, be refined. Now notice what it says in verse 13. The book of Daniel ends this way, but go your way till the end, for you shall rest and arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So the book of Daniel was written specifically, distinctly, and significantly for end times. So every chapter we look at, what does it say about God? What does it say about my life today? What does it say about end times? Now with that background, let's go right to chapter one in the book of Daniel. Now what's the name of this book we're studying? What is it? It's Daniel. What does that mean? When you see the E-L at the end of a name, it's Elohim. It's the name of God. So that's God. Dan was judges. So the name Daniel means God is my judge or God is my vindicator. Now, when we think of a judge in modern days, most of us don't want to appear before the judge. We don't want to go there, do we? But in Daniel's day, the judge was one who set all things right. The judge was one who vindicated you if you were condemned. The judge was one who was on your side, not against you. So the name Daniel is God, the God of judgment and justice, the God who is my vindicator. So in the great controversy between good and evil, in this panorama, this struggle between Christ and Satan, God is the one that one day will set all things right. There's a lot that's unfair in our world. That's a lot that's unjust in our world. But God is going to set all things right in the end. That's the theme of the book of Daniel. Now let's just jump right into the book. If I were writing a theme for the first chapter of the book of Daniel, I would theme it, the God who turns defeat into victory. When you start with Daniel chapter one, it looks like there's a great defeat for the true God. Look, Daniel one, verse one and two. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So you have two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim, two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And here, Babylon representing evil and wickedness, Babylon representing rebellion against God, Jerusalem, the city of peace, representing God's truth, representing the word of God, representing the people of God, Babylon representing era, apostasy, and rebellion. Here, Daniel sees Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attack Jerusalem, his holy city, and Jehoiakim. And Babylon wins. It appears that error wins and truth loses. It appears that this rebellious, wicked power triumphs over the people of God. But notice next verse, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. 
You see where it says the Lord? That word is an interesting word. It has to do, if you're translating it from Hebrew into Greek, Adonai, the Lord, the one that's sovereign over all. So evil may have a temporary victory, but God is still sovereign in your life. There may be temporary defeats. There may be temporary setbacks. There may be sickness. There may be suffering. There may be problems in your life. But God is still in control. He is still the Adonai. He is still the sovereign God. He is still the one who will set all things right. As we'll see, the chapter one begins with the defeat for the true God, but it ends with a great victory for the true God. God knows how to bring victory out of defeat. God knows how to bring joy out of sorrow. God knows how to care for us in the times of difficulty. So, the Lord gives Jehoiakim. The Lord has a purpose. See, the Lord gave. In other words, the Lord has a purpose. The Lord has a plan. Even when Israel is defeated, even when Jerusalem goes into captivity, God still has a plan. Now, notice what it says, verse 2. The Lord God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. In other words, the house of God is the sanctuary. And so Nebuchadnezzar, robs the golden candlestick. He he robs the golden altar of incense. He robs the golden table where the showbread was placed. He takes those articles that were known to be part of the worship service of the temple of God in the sanctuary of God. He takes them back to Babylon, puts them in the temple of Belmarduk, his chief god. You'll see why that's important. It says he, he carries them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. His God was Bel Marduk. That was the chief God. There were 13 gods in Babylon. He brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Imagine it. These golden vessels and articles that were graced by the Shekinah glory of God in the sanctuary in the presence of that Shekinah glory, presence of that, they are now brought into the idol's temple. They are defiled. What blasphemy. Now, the king, verse 3, instructs Aspenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel. Now, that word children in Hebrew has to do with uh, young adults, teenagers. You'll see that in the next verse. Of Israel, some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish. Now, notice, these are young men. There's no blemish. They are specimens of physical stamina. They're good-looking. They're handsome. They're gifted in wisdom. They, uh, they have the ability to learn. They're bright. They're intelligent. They possess knowledge, so they've already been part. Their schooling has already been partially done. They're quick to understand. They have ability to serve the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and literature, the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. So what's Nebuchadnezzar's intent? Here's his intent. Take the brightest and the best from Israel, from Jerusalem. Bring the brightest and the best. They're handsome, good-looking, intelligent, sharp-witted. They already have some knowledge. Brainwash them. Saturate their minds with the philosophy, ideology, religion of Babylon. Then send them back to Jerusalem to worship, to, 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 to live there and influence those in Jerusalem in behalf of the king of Babylon. So they were to be 
puppets of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to go back to influence the Israelites so that that nation too could be worshipers of these false gods. Now, this tactic is not some uh, new tactic. It's, it's a tactic that's been used down through the centuries, even used today. For example, when the Russians years ago in the late 70s attacked Afghanistan, one of the things they did was take Afghani youth and bring them back to the universities in Moscow to teach them Marxism and communism so they could send them back to rule uh, there in uh, Afghanistan. This is commonly done. One nation attacks another nation, brings its nobles, and it, the best puts them through some kind of re-education process. So this was Nebuchadnezzar's intent with Daniel and his friends. It says in verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king so that he would put them through the University of Babylon for three years. As they were ushered into the Babylonian empire through the very famous Ishtar gate in procession way, Babylon was this amazing city. It was larger than Rome, larger than Damascus, larger than Athens, an amazing city. The river Euphrates ran through the center of Babylon, giving it a constant water supply. Babylon's walls were so high that, three, uh, that two chariots could race side by side on the walls. Babylon had outer walls to protect it, but then along the river, it had inner walls in case anybody ever broached, breached the outer walls. In addition to that, Babylon had scores of temples to their gods, 13 gods of Babylon, Belmardic being the lead god. And Babylon had a 20-year food supply so that if an enemy attacked it, they said, look, you're going to have to wait out there for a long time. They had a 20-year food supply. King Nebuchadnezzar built for his queen the gardens of beautiful gardens called the Babylonian gardens, the hanging gardens, some of the most prestigious in the world at that time. So Babylon was the leading nation, and it, Babylon was the leading nation, and its capital, Babylon, was the leading city in the world at that time. Daniel and his friends were ushered into this feast. Now imagine it. Imagine it, a lush banquet hall. Everything on that table to tempt the eye, delight the taste. And that food is offered to Belmarduk, the Babylonian god of the temple. And there, Daniel and his friends are invited, eat, eat, in honor of the king. What happens? First, there's a ceremony. Verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, in the Bible, names represent something. Daniel, that name literally meant the God of justice and judgment. The God is my vindicator. Hananiah, that means the Lord is gracious unto me. See, names meant something. When little Hananiah was running around, his little boy, Hanny, his mama would say, Hanny, always remember your name, Hananiah. The Lord is gracious unto me. Whatever happens, Michelle. Godlike. We get the name Michael from that, Godlike. And Azariah, the Lord's my helper. So these Hebrews, when they're in captivity to Babylon, 
taken over 1,500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. Daniel, God's my judge. He's my vindicator. He's my defender. He's my refuge. He's going to make all things right. Hananiah, even in captivity, even in bondage, the Lord's gracious unto me. Michelle, I always want to be like God, reflect his honesty, his integrity, his steadfast loyalty. Azariah, the Lord's my helper, even in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar knew he needed to do something about the names, so he began the brainwashing process. They're ushered into the banquet hall of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar gives them new names. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names as they come in. He gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar, what does that mean? Keeper of the hid treasures of Bel. What are the hid treasures of Bel? They are the articles that are stolen from the sanctuary. Daniel, your name is not Daniel. God's my judge and vindicator. Your name is Belteshazzar, the keeper of the hid treasures of Bel. Where's your God now, Daniel? Where is he? Where is he, Daniel? Jerusalem's destroyed, in ruins. My armies have con conquered. There's another God that's Bel Marduk. You will be, Daniel, the keeper of the hid treasures of Bel. And Hananiah, your name's not the Lord is gracious unto me, but your name is Shadrach, inspiration of the sun. It's the sun God that's gracious unto you. And Mishael, to Meshach, Meshach, you are now belonging to the goddess of Sheba. And Azariah, Azariah, your name is not God is my helper, but you are now Abednego. And the word Abednego means servant of Nebo. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he changes the names from the true God to worshipers of all of his false gods. And they're introduced there at this banquet, at the start of the three years of education to change their minds, to brainwash them. That's their goal. That's Nebuchadnezzar's goal. But here, he spreads out his banquet before them. And on that table, everything to delight the taste, everything to impress the eye. On that table, there is, are all kind of meats and flesh foods and wine and so forth. But notice what the Bible says, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince, chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Why wouldn't Daniel participate of that and take that food? Three reasons. One, it was offered to idols, and to take the food would be to acknowledge the supremacy of the idol over the true God. He wouldn't do that. Number two, there was unclean food there that Daniel could not take and be faithful to God. He didn't want to be disobedient to God because remember in Leviticus chapter 11, it talks about not eating any animal product that does not split the hoof and does not chew the cud. And uh, pork would have been on that table. It would have been a contrary to Jewish identity. In fact, today, it's wise to follow those health principles of God. Did you know that pork is the highest meat in fat? 
And did you know that one of the great problems today with things like bacon is that it's so cured that it contributes to, in that processed food, a host of diseases, including heart disease and cancer, etc. So it would be well to take Daniel's position and purpose in our heart not to defile ourselves. The third reason he wouldn't do that is this. He wanted to keep his body in good health. First, he wouldn't worship heathen gods. Second, he wouldn't disobey the word of God. And thirdly, he wanted to keep his body in good health. You know, throughout scripture, there are those admonitions to present our body as a living sacrifice to God. Let's look at a couple of those texts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the things that we put in it can either defile it or they can um, build it up. They can either break it down or build it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? Some people say, my body is mine. I can do whatever I want with it. Not at all. Our bodies are a temple, not a fun house. Verse 20. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here is the great appeal to glorify God in our bodies. The things we take into our body dramatically affect us. If you have a poor quality of blood that goes to the brain, the Holy Spirit is less likely to communicate with the brain. And it's difficult to understand the messages of the spirit. Um, if we defile our bodies, we open ourselves up to the lifestyle diseases that are so prevalent in our society, heart disease, cancer, etc. You remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Paul is talking to the Christian believers, Christian community. And he says, for Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, I beseech you, I urge you, I plead with you, Paul says, Therefore, brothers, and of course, sisters, by the mercies of God, that is through the grace of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see where it says bodies there? The Greek word for bodies is sumata. It means the sum of all your being, your mental, your physical, your spiritual life. So what Paul is saying here is I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Present your bodies, present your minds, present the whole being to God. That is what Daniel did. Back to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel purposes in his heart that what? He would not defile himself. Now notice as he purposed in his heart. What's another word for purpose? Daniel decided. Daniel determined. Purposes in his heart. Now in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the heart is a symbol of the mind, the thinking process. Let's look at a couple of passages on that. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, verse 23. The Bible says, Daniel purposed in his heart. Notice Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. In other words, keep your mind do not sacrifice your mind to be conformed to the things of this world. 
keep your mind with all diligence. Daniel purposed in his heart. He decided in his mind that he would be faithful to God. Had Daniel compromised in that point, God could not have used him in the future. In the world that we live in, the devil is manipulating the mind through mass media, through social media. The devil is manipulating the mind through DVDs, through television. He wants us to be conformed to the things of this world. That's why Paul says, do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, verse 2. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, set not your affection on things on this earth, but on things above, on things above. So Daniel purposes in his heart. He decides in his mind. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7. Proverbs 23, verse 7. Have you made a decision in your mind? Have you settled it that you will do nothing in your life that is displeasing to God? Have you settled it in the recesses of your soul that all you want in life to do is to please God? Some Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the devil wants to capture our thinking processes Daniel would not compromise. Men and women living in the last days of earth's history who make a decision not to compromise will be blessed by God. They will be blessed by God. The blessings of God, the favor of God, comes upon those who determine in their hearts to serve God. So Daniel purposes. Now look, verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel in into favor and goodwill with the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel was not belligerent. Daniel was not arrogant. Daniel was not rebellious. Daniel knew how to develop relationships with people. And he had been talking to this prince of the eunuchs. He had been talking to the chief steward. Daniel had good favor with this man. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord King, verse 10, who's appointed you food and drink. Why should he see faces looking worse than young men who are your age? I'd endanger my head before the king. In other words, King, I'm Daniel, I'm afraid. Because if I don't give you the king's best diet, if I don't do that, and, and, and you are weak, and, and your complexion is sallow and pale, Daniel, if I, if I don't do that, if I don't give the best diet, it's, it's, it's my head, Daniel. And then Daniel is a wise man. Daniel says, look, why don't you do it this way? Verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Daniel said, look, let me be a plant-based vegetarian. And the king's servant probably blinked his eyes and said, what? You're going to be weaker. You're going to be weaker. Why do you want to do that? But Daniel wanted to trust God. It's interesting today how science is demonstrating the plant-based vegetarian diet helps us to reduce the risk of heart disease and cancer. 
Did you know many athletes were actually looking into a plant-based diet because they figured it, it encouraged their endurance um, and it uh, strengthened them? It's kind of funny. I read about um, one of the major national football league teams who, you know, the linemen are big bulky. They went on a plant-based diet because they felt it would be make them faster. You say, what well, don't you get weak on a plant-based diet? Look at the elephant. <laughs> the elephant eats a plant-based diet. Look how strong they are. You know, I read a funny story once. There was a meat company that sponsored a race there in Colorado up Pikes Peak uh, every year. But um, a vegetarian won it for two or three years in a row. So they ceased uh, that uh, they, they, they ceased uh, doing that uh, race. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, the Bible allows us to eat meat. Uh, it tells us that uh, after the flood, uh, the human race could eat meat, certainly not the unclean meats. But if you want the best possible diet, eat as many fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables as possible. Um, go back to the Eden diet. You know, my wife and I, have been plant-based vegetarians for many, many years. And uh, she's running a marathon. Did you know that? My wife, 79 years old. She ran her first marathon at 70. And she's running another marathon this year, January 28, 79 years old. She's going to run again. So you talk about energy. Uh, God has given her that energy. Now, look, oh, we better get back to the book of Daniel and away from marathons, right? So uh, so the... the uh, Chief uh, Steward, verse 14, consents with them in this matter, and he tests them four days, 10 days, 10 days. So what happens at the end of 10 days? Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their countenance appears better and fatter in, in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So the steward took away their portion of delicacies, and they were allowed to eat, uh, verse 16, and that they were to drink uh, uh, water only, of course, and the wine that they were to drink was taken away, and they and, and he gave them vegetables. Now they honored God, and I want you to see three times that God is on center stage in Daniel one. First, God is on center stage in chapter two, where the Lord gives Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But He's the sovereign Lord, and He has a plan. What is his plan? To allow the Hebrew worthies to go to Babylon. He would be with them as they made a decision to be faithful to him. And he would bring them in favor to influence the entire nation of Babylon with the things of God. Now, God is on center stage a second time here when you look at um, verse 17. Verse 17. It says... As for the four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had visions and dreams. Now, there are three times that uh, God is on center stage. First, God brings, allows Nebuchadnezzar to overthrow Jerusalem. He has a purpose. Second time God is on, and that's verse two. Second time God is on center stage is verse nine. We had mentioned it earlier, but I want to go back to it. God brings Daniel into favor and goodwill. So God's working in Daniel's life. Daniel purposes in heart to serve God. God's working in his life. Third time God is on center stage here is in verse 17, when God gives them knowledge, skill, and all the literature and wisdom. 
here is one of the major lessons that when we for tonight, there are a number of lessons, but here's one of a couple of the major ones. First, whatever environment you find yourself in, you can serve God. Maybe your home is chaos and maybe there's nobody else in your home that serves God. You can serve God. If Daniel can serve God in Babylon, you can serve God where you are. Maybe you work with a lot of ungodly people around you. You can serve God. You can purpose in your heart to serve God. In a culture of our day that is like Babylon, with alcohol flowing, people destroying their bodies, with the music playing, with sexual immorality blatantly put across the screen that we have, when it seems so difficult, you can purpose in your heart by the grace of God and through his strength to serve him. That's the first lesson. Secondly, when we make a decision to serve God, he blesses us in incredible ways. God will do more for your life than you can possibly imagine. When we make a decision and purpose in our heart to serve God, like Daniel, we're incredibly blessed. Look what happens at the end of our chapter. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now they're coming in for their comprehensive exams as they have finished three years in the University of Babylon. What happens? Verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in Israel. 10 times better. 10 times better. When we determine in our hearts to serve God, there's a blessing upon our life. The favor of God is upon our life. And God opens doors of opportunity that we can't imagine. Had Daniel compromised, he would have missed out on amazing opportunities that God led him to be an influence the entire kingdom of Babylon. God has something special to do with your life, my friend. God has big plans for you. God has blessings for you that you cannot imagine. And as you make a decision in your heart to serve God and not to live a life of self-aggrandizement, not to live a life, a greedy life of compromising, and not to live that kind of life, but to live a life of faithfulness to God, he'll bless your life. Look how the chapter ends. One verse, small verse, few words, but so powerful. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar rises and falls. His son rises and falls. His grandson rises and falls. But Daniel continues. The nation of Babylon one day is defeated by the Persians, and it goes into the dust. But Daniel continues. One day... The Babylon of this world is going to collapse. One day, the earth will shake. One day, lightning will flash from the east to the west. One day, every mountain and island will be moved out of their places. One day, buildings will tumble down. One day, Jesus will come. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. The living righteous will be caught up together with them with immortal bodies to meet Christ in the air. 
one day, like Babylon of old, this world will be destroyed by the glory of God. But one day, Christ will create a new heavens and a new earth. And we can live with him forever and ever and ever. Daniel continued from Babylon to meet a Persia. And we can continue as well in a new kingdom, in a new world. Open your heart tonight to purpose deep within the citadel of your soul, deep within the recesses of your mind to worship the true God and never to compromise. And God will bless your life in ways you can't imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his goodness and grace to us. Thank you that you give us the power to purpose in our hearts to serve God, that you convict us of what's right and what's wrong, and you empower us to live these godly lives. Oh, my Father, help every single one of us purpose in our hearts to serve you in these last days of earth's history. In Christ's name, amen. Be sure to tell your friends about these Bible studies on Wednesday night. Next week, I'm going to study with you an amazing prophecy. And the prophecy that I'm going to study with you next week is this. It's a prophecy that explains the history of Europe today. It traces the four great nations that would rule the world. In addition to that, it explains the exploding conflict we have in the Middle East. And I'll show you exactly next week the future of Europe, the future of the Middle East. Don't miss it. Don't miss it at all. We'll see you next week, same time. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.